we're glad you're here this morning with us. Celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're continuing our series uh, called Advent in the Psalms. We've been looking at several Psalms. Uh, where this number four is today. We started with Psalm 25, looking at and celebrating with the psalmist as the people in the Old Testament were waiting for, this, for the Messiah to come, the promise that God had made to Adam back in Genesis 3. He made a promise again, a covenant promise to Abraham, saying that from Abraham's descendant, the Messiah will come. God then made a covenant with David. We're going to be studying that coming in the new year. In the book of Samuel, he made a promise to King David that from his descendant, a king will come and reign on an eternal throne. They're waiting for this Messiah. We celebrate him Today we looked at Psalm 40 that God uh, showed us in that psalm as we remember uh, to trust God, that God is faithful, God is trustworthy. Last week, Pastor Scott preached on Psalm 72, did a great job showing that this baby that would be born would come to reign and rule the earth, that this little baby would rise up and to die and rise again, then return someday to reign and rule over all of creation. Psalm 80, as we're in today, and I'll read it in a moment, is like Psalm 25 and Psalm 40. In some ways, there's a piece of Psalm 80 where there's a lament. We're going to read about another lament. A lament, a a time of grieving, a time of of expressing sorrow, and a time of, of, of deep despair of God's people. And we're remembering as we study the book of Psalms that it's okay, it's right, it's good at time for God's people to lift up their hearts, their broken hearts to God, to lament, to have deep sorrow and despair over the judgments that have come, over their own sin and folly, over the the consequences of their own unfaithfulness, even the trials and tribulations of our lives. The psalmist is teaching us that the, 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 the scriptures, the truth, leaves room for the realism of the world. There's no candy-coated view of reality in Scripture, and it's good to remind ourselves that it's not about you trying to be a good person and trying to have enough faith so nothing ever bad happens to you. Don't buy that lie. That God's people lament the broken hearts, grief and sorrow, part of this life. And we see the psalmist in Psalm 80 looking to God to restore the people, to to bring deliverance and restoration. So turn with me to Psalm 80. I'm going to read it to you as I read God's holy word, his authoritative word, his inerrant, infallible word. Hear the word of God. Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, I'm going to get hard saying that, I've been trying it all week, Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God. God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought us, you brought a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. 
It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then? Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock of your right hand planted and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May may they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man, on your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. <clears throat> Again, this psalm, like other psalms, we're not sure exact time and place of the psalm within the history of Israel. We're not sure. Many scholars believe that the psalm was written during the, the destruction of the northern kingdom. If you remember, the kingdoms of Israel, the 12 tribes, had split into two tribes, 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, The ten tribes to the north, their capital was Samaria. The two tribes to the south, their capital was Jerusalem. And the kingdoms have split. But many scholars, which I I lean this way as well, since Psalm 80 focuses more on the northern kingdom, calling them the shepherd of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh, two of the major tribes of the north, uh, it's best to see, I think, this this psalm in its context as as a restoration, plea, cry, prayer, of the northern kingdom that was about to fall to the Assyrian army back in 721 B.C. That's the context. Frank Delich, he's a famous, uh, I don't want to say famous, but a well-known commentary, says the psalmist here, Psalm 80, as it seems, prays in a time in which the oppression of Assyria rested heavily upon the kingdom of Ephraim and, and Judah, kingdom of Ephraim and Judah, the southern kingdom, saw itself threatened. So northern kingdom's being destroyed. Judah sees himself threatened with ruin. And he says, with ruin when this bulwark, this, this deliverance that's needed, should have fallen. The, the, the stronghold, the, the, the strength bulwark. End quote. So what you have here, if, if, if you know anything about the kingdoms of the southern and northern kingdom, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes, had zero good kings. Those 10 tribes throughout the history of Israel, the northern kingdom, the 10 kingdoms, had not one single good king that worshiped God and sought after the Lord. Not one. In fact, Jeroboam, the first king, set up an idolatrous worship center for people to go there rather than go to Jerusalem. Wicked kings, all of the northern kingdom, all 10 tribes. And when God's patience wore out, When God's patience wore out, (laughs) that's an eye-opener, the kingdom fell to the Assyrian army who marched in, deported the people, took, captured a lot of people, deported them, and they would bring their own people and put them in place and to try to stir up idolatry, worship, and all the things that were going on. So they deport and import people. This psalm, this plea, this prayer, it, it shows how sh- the shocked the Jerusalem, uh, the southern kingdom was. They're, they're watching this happen, the southern kingdoms in Jerusalem were watching this happen, 
and, and they're, they're recognizing that their, their sisters, the ten tribes to the, to the south of them, excuse me, to the north of them, are being destroyed. Now, there was conflict between the two kingdoms, but they were still their sisters and brothers in the kingdom. It was still the ten tribes of the north. And you can imagine the Syrian army coming in to destroy this and take, you know, take them by, 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 by force. And now your borders are no longer your sisters and brothers, but the Assyrian army is right on your doorstep. That's the context. In fact, if you look at uh, the Psalm 80, it says at the very beginning, the choir master, according to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. So the psalm is delivered to the temple in Jerusalem as they're looking and waiting and calling on the restoration of God because the northern kingdom is going to fall. And he's saying, send revival, send revival. The northern kingdom is falling. The ten tribes are falling. And not only them, but we're next. If we don't get our act together, we're next. Restore us, O oh God. Restore us. Deliver us. Don't let this happen. The psalm has four sections, if you're, if you're interested, with three stanzas. I think this is important. As we look at the stanzas, you'll see them quickly as I, as I just point them out to you. So section one is verses one through three. And you see the stanza, he's saying, you're the shepherd, O Israel. And then verse 3, we find the first stanza. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we might be saved. Stanza 1. Then this next section, 4 through 7, how long will you be angry? <laughs> how long will you be angry? How long will the Israel's enables, enemies taunt us? And then the second refrain, look at verse uh, 7. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we might be saved. See it again? It's the same thing. Then verse 8 through 13, the psalmist is talking about a vine. He's doing the imagery of God's people. He's kind of like doing a history lesson. It ain't for God. It's not like God forgot. He's just reminding the people of God's care for them, that they flourished as this vine at one time, but now it's been raided. And then lastly, 14 through 19, is a cry, is the lament, is calling out to God. To restore and to save them. In verse 19, we see the third refrain. Restore us, verse 19, O God. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Verse 3, verse 7, and verse 19. And you see this plea. So what we'll do is we're going to look at this psalm in three sections. We're going to look at it, the face of God. Let your face shine upon us. We'll look at the, the frown of God. And then the favor of God. So first, the face of God. The heart of this prayer, the heart of this prayer repeated three times, let your face shine, let your face shine, was very familiar to the Jewish people. Very familiar to the Jewish people. Three times it's cried out in this communal lament. Let your face shine. It goes back to number six. It was a time in Israel history that Aaron, the priest, was instructed to pronounce God's blessing upon the people of Israel. It is, it is the benediction upon God's people. And Aaron is told to say this, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So what does it mean to have the face of God, God's face to shine upon you. Obviously, it doesn't literally mean his face. Jesus tells us that God the Father is a spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and truth, John 4. Moses was on the mountain in Sinai in Exodus 33. God, God comes, and he descends on it, and he speaks to Moses. Speaks to Moses. 
the voice of God, from the face of God. And when he's on the mountain, Moses says, let me see your glory. Let me see the infinite value. Let me see this perfect, brilliant, bright greatness of yours. Your unimaginable beauty. Unimaginable beauty. Your glory. God says, you know what? I'm not going to show you my glory. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you and shield you. My hand will pass by you. Then I'll take my hand away. You'll see my back. Because my face, you cannot see. No one can see my face and live. Hebrew panim. The face is this deep, close intimacy with God. Psalm 72, David cries out, Your face, Lord, I seek. Hide not your face from me. David is actually praying for this unbroken intimacy, presence of God for his life. The Jews would face Jerusalem when they prayed. It was the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory came down in the temple and God's glory shined. Look at verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And then look at the next verse. Next part says, you who are what? Enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. That's the description of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple where the law was kept. The, the ark was a, a box covered in gold and the poles would go through the ark and they would carry it and they'd bring it in when they brought it into the Holy of Holies and the lid on the ark of the covenant was gold and it was, was the atonement, place of atonement, what's been known as the mercy seat, the lid. It was gold plate and on both ends of the mercy seat was a cherubim. Just what he cries out here, cherubim. Enthroned is a cherubim shine forth. He's talking about the mercy seat. He's talking about the cherubim, these angelic beings that were in the mercy seat where the Shekinah glory would come down. They were this visible, 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 I get it right, reminder of the holiness of God, the power of God, the glory of God, the face of God, the place of God would come down and dwell on Yom Kippur in the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where the high priest would see God face to face to the best of their ability. He couldn't go in unless he was clean. He would wash, clean his clothes. He would go in with a spotless sacrifice that was also clean without defect. Now, in some sense, Scripture teaches us that God is everywhere, right? I mean, the psalmist says, where could I go where you're not there? God is everywhere. But in another sense, when we talk about the intimacy of God, we're talking about the face of God, the panim of God, there's a difference. So you may come walking in this building the first time you've ever been here, and you may have seen me up here preaching, and, and I see your face, you see my face, but there's a sense that you really don't know me, and I really don't know you, right? There's no relationship. We don't really know each other. Dr. Tim Keller says this about intimacy in the face. He says this, your face is the relational gate into your heart. From far away, you can't have a relationship. You actually have to come up face to face. When you come up to somebody, you can't look at their kneecap or their shoulder. You look at their face if you want a personal transaction, a personal interaction, because the face is the place where I see and hear you, and the face is the place where you see and hear me. I know some of you have to look down to see my face, but still, there's face-to-face. Every wedding I've ever done, I tell the couple, you're going to hear the charge, but when we come up here and we're ready to do the vows, where you're going to make a personal covenant commitment to one another, face each other. Hold hands, look at each other, and say your vows. 
We're in, we're in a culture, man, where that face-to-face, that, it, it, you know, it, it's more text messaging, emailing, you know, this two-dimensional communication where you're a different person many times behind a keyboard. That's not what he's talking about here. Being face-to-face intimacy is also about being transparent. It's about being vulnerable, being honest. It's hard to hide something when you look at their face. You ever been in that hard situation or hard conversation? You're like, I don't want to do this over the phone. I want you to see the anguish of my soul. I, I want to have that conversation with you face-to-face. Well, men and women are created, the Bible tells us, in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. And God had, in Genesis 2, places the, uh, the man in the garden, tells him he will work it. Genesis 2, he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Two Hebrew words that will be later used for worship. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of everything in the garden, every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, right, you should not eat. For in that day when you eat it, you will surely die. Genesis tells us that God was walking among man, when he created man and woman before sin entered the world, and they were naked and unashamed. There was no fear, there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was absolute unhindered, unhindered fellowship with each other and with God, their creator, Adam and Eve and their creator. God's face was shining upon them. In fact, when God created the world, he said after he created six days, he looked at all that he created and he said what? Very good. Not an inspection like, wow, the star is really staying in place. It wasn't an inspection. It wasn't like our cars that we got that really shouldn't be on the road, but we got the sticker anyway. You know, it's not that. (laughs) He's looking at his creation and he is pleased. Eating that meatball tomorrow during Christmas, I will look at it and say, that was good. (laughs) I made that. God creates the universe, he looks at it and he says, it is good, you are glorious. And the purpose is, is to, of creation is, is beauty, is glory, the reflecting the beauty of God, his glory, his face is shining on creation, there is shalom in the world. And all of us live for that benediction. All of us live to hear God say to us, it is very good. Do you hear our maker say, I love you, it is very good. But for some of us, that benediction never comes, there is silence, we're not sure. In our hearts, there's a deep sense that something is missing. In fact, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and sin entered the world, it literally says in chapter 3, verse 8, that the sound of the Lord, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the panim, the face of God, among the trees of the garden. When sin entered the world, we ran, we hid from God because we're separated from him. We don't have that personal relationship, that intimacy with him. We've been banished from the garden, from the presence of God, from the very face of God. Rebellion and and the lack of trust of the goodness of God caused us to run. And now we replace the benediction of God. We replace with other things. We try to fill this emptiness, this void in our life. We're missing the benediction of God. Trying to be our own saviors and our own lords. We we, we, We were built to live in that benediction, but we don't hear it many times. Because of our sin, we don't hear, I love you. What we hear is try harder, work harder, do better. Or you know what, there is no God, I'll do whatever I want. When we do that, we're running. We're turning away from the face of Israel, the face of God. 
Israel knew of their rebellion. They knew that God had shepherded the people of Israel by his grace. He, they chose, he chose them. He planted them in the vine. He groomed them. He caused them to grow. The psalmist knew that the face of God was not shining upon them anymore. And the people of God knew in that day, in this lament, in this cry, in this, in this uh, plea to be restored, the people of God knew that God alone can bring restoration, that God alone can make his face shine upon them again. You hear it all throughout the psalm, verse 1. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. That's what he's saying. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your might, you come to save. He mentions Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh as as Israel as a whole. Restore, O God, your face, verse 3. Verse 8, you brought out us out of Egypt like a vine. You drove the nations out. Verse 9, you cleared the ground. Verse 14, you had regard. I mean, you hear it all over and over and over again. Verse 18, then we're not, we shall not turn back from you. You, give us life. We will call upon your name. Verse 19, restore us. Let your face. And they, they, were, they, they knew. They knew restoration was going to happen. It was God alone. He's the only one who could make their face shine upon them. Look at the, look at the second part here, the frown of God. And so here's the question. As Israel is waiting for the face of God, as Israel is waiting for God's face to be restored to them, let's ask this question of ourselves. Is is God smiling at you? Is God's favor for you this morning? Do you have the smile of God? The cause of this communal lament has brought into question, is God smiling upon them? So how how can we have, how, how do we know what, what kind of assurance can we have that as we go through life, as we go through trials, and we go through difficulty, even when we sin and we rebel, how can we know that God's smiling upon us and not his frown? Verse 4, O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayer? The Hebrew word for anger is an interesting word. It is literally the word smoked. And we're not talking about smoking meat. He was smoked with them. They had turned their back on God, and the smile of God upon them was removed, and and off into the captivity they went. But it wasn't always like that. Look at the first few verses. Verse 1 again. Give ear, O shepherd. Give ear. You who led Joseph like a flock. Very familiar passage. Old Testament talks a lot about God being the shepherd of God's people. They were pastoral in those days. Lots of shepherds. He used the imagery of shepherding. In fact, Isaiah 40 says this. He, God, tends his flock like a shepherd. He, God, gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Isn't that beautiful? He gently leads those that have young. God's standing there, God's protecting, God's guarding, God's loving, God's feeding his sheep. Because sheep, we know, are infamously wayward, right? Helpless, wayward, not the brightest animals on the planet. And this is your time they knew. They had time that they didn't trust God's people. They didn't trust God's word. They didn't trust God's prophet uh, and, and the wisdom of the divine shepherd. They went their own way. But God was a faithful shepherd in the midst of their sin. In verse 8, we read, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. And that's a figurative way. It's a figurative way to describe how God's people was, was taken, uprooted out of slavery and planted in 
Israel, taken out of Egypt, planted in Israel, and the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was theirs. And for a time, look, verse 9, they prospered. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. It was a time of prosperity. Verse 10, the mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out branches to the sea and its roots to the river. In other words, there's this picture of of, of, a flourishing, of a flourishing nation. But now all that's changed. The condition we find God's people is found in verse 12. The vineyard is no longer taken care of. It's grown wild. The walls broke down. In fact, the, the fruit is being plucked by wild boars. And the vine that was once cared for is now being destroyed. And if you go back in the prophets, you read Jeremiah, you read uh, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you'll see how God chose that metaphor as a vineyard to describe his people, Isaiah 5. The vineyard is there, but it produces worthless grapes. And so here's something to consider, consider as we look at this lament, this frown. If the vineyard of Israel, if the vineyard of Israel ultimately failed, if, if Israel was wiped off the planet during the Assyrian and then later Babylon in the south, if, the, if that happened, if they were annihilated, if they were completely removed, done, destroyed, where is the hope for the rest of the world? What happens to the covenant promise God made to Adam that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the enemy, Satan. What would happen to the promise that God made to Abraham that through his descendant God would bless the world? Or the promise that God made to David that he'll raise up, uh, he'll raise up a son who will reign in an everlasting throne? What happens to the smile of God? What happens to the promise of God to the world? You see, this lament this communal lament, this national lament, isn't just for the nation of Israel. It's for all the people of the world. It's for all the people of the world. And that's why the, uh, that's, and then, uh, as the psalmist is continuing this lament in verse 14, look what he says. Don't let the world perish. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Don't let it be destroyed. And stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. The people have sinned and rebelled against God. They were object of his wrath, and only the Lord can restore them by forgiving their sins, by, by renewing the covenant, by driving out the enemies. Restore us, O God. It's a blessing for the whole world. Because when the face of the Lord, when the face of God shines on his people, the people are blessed. The people are blessed with the presence and the favor of God. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah, reflect, stop, think. And before I leave this point, we go to the last point. Let, let me point something out. Look at with me again, verse 12. Why then, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruits? Why, Lord? Why? At one level, it's obvious, right? God is judging their sin, disciplining them for their disobedience. They were told numerous times to repent, to repent, and to repent, and to trust God, to trust God, to trust God. And that if they did not, this was going to happen, and they didn't listen. But even with that said, sometimes we find ourselves, do we not, 
okay, Lord, yes, I got it, I got it. But how long is this going to last? And sometimes we don't know the why. Sometimes we will never know the why. But this we do know. God may not have answered the wise, all the wise to Israel in this psalm, all the lamenting that's going on in this psalm. At the moment, they don't have their answer of all the wise. But this we do know. Centuries later, God will take all the imagery, God will take all their lamenting that is being poured out in this plea, and he will point it to the one who will come and restore in his perfect timing. Advent teaches us that through the psalm and through the word, that although all of us deserve the frown of God because of our sin and rebellion, we can receive the favor of God, the smile of God again. All of us need the smile of God. All of us need the smile of God when we're going through life, even the hard times and the dark times, even when the wise are not answered, we must know, we must hear the benediction, know the face of God is for us and not against us. His benediction is what we need to hear even through the storm of life. The favor of God. Advent is about Jesus, the favor of God. The smile of God, the smile of God has come to the world. You could almost see for a moment, just think, you almost see the faces, these giant smiles on the shepherds after their fear were watching their sheep at night and the announcement of the angel on Christmas morning said, fear not, I behold, I bring you good news of joy. No, of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christmas is the story of God and his grace turning to us with a smile again. The announcement of the angels to the shepherd continues. Multitudes of heavenly angels and hosts are singing and praying and and praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The NIV has glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. This peace, this blessing for those from whom God's favor rests. The pronouncement or the announcement of peace by the angel was an absolute peace, an objective peace, a, a reality peace, not something you receive from the earth. It's not an announcement of the sudden peace among nations or conflicts in the world. That's not why Jesus came the first time to bring political or international peace. The Jewish people knew that shalom, that the peace of God, that was at creation during the life of Adam and Eve before sin into the world will not totally be restored until the kingdom of God comes in the fullness in the age to come. The peace that God is declaring in Luke and the angels are announcing isn't even the inner peace that we have in Christ. It is a peace that Jesus brings That's between us and God, God and us, because of our sin. The king has come. He's inaugurating the kingdom. He is calling everyone everywhere to repent, and he guarantees by his coming that the second coming will come. He'll inaugurate, then he'll bring in the final kingdom, the future restored kingdom, where now he is announcing 
the unreconciled relationship between God and us because of our sin, there is reconciliation. The frown of God becomes the smile of God. His name is Jesus. The Bible tells us that the most primary and natural condition of the heart is not ignorance that you need more and more and more information. As, as culture continues, as we grow in knowledge, you'll understand, no, that's not what it says. The Bible says it's not indifference that you just need to be motivated to try to save yourself. The Bible says that the most primary condition of the heart is sinful hostility to a holy, good, great God that we need reconciliation. The frown of God made into the smile of God. Now, if you read the Gospels, if you read the four accounts of the Gospels, you'll see, and you'll see that Jesus is Psalm 80. He, Psalm 80 points to Jesus being the source of the blessing of God, the source of the smile of God in our lives. John 10 Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. This shepherd does not stand guard, does not protect, does not feed his sheep, but lays down his life for his sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus sees his helpless sheep that are in grave danger and dies in their place on their behalf. For for their protection, the shepherd loses his life, and by his atoning sacrifice on the cross, they are saved. By his death, the smile of God comes to us. He's the good shepherd. He's the selfless, selfless one who dies on behalf of his sheep. The smile of God. It's nothing we can earn. Jesus accomplished it to us on the cross. In John 15, Jesus identifies himself as the true vine. I am the true vine, he says. My father, the vine dresser, and you, us, are the branches. I mentioned earlier about the vine in, uh, written in the Old Testament scriptures. Every, if you read it in the Old Testament, the major prophet, it always ends bad. <laughs> That's why Jesus says, I am the, Jesus did not say I'm the vine. He said, I'm the true vine. I'm the genuine, perfect, true, essential, enduring vine, and you are the branches. You're in union with me through the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ, your nourishment and your union, and your life is in me. And Jesus identifies him as the true vine, the true Israel, the one with whom the blessings come, the one in whom the smile of God comes to us. He's the everlasting vine who brings eternal nourishment for those in union with Christ, bought by the precious blood of Christ. He's the shepherd who lays down his life. He is the vine who gives life. He is the vine that brings union with Christ. And finally, verse 17, look at this, the close. Verse 17 says this. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. And we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Man at your right hand, consider the place of prominence, honor, authority. He's identified in the psalm as the son of man. In the immediate context, he's either talking about the king to the north, maybe the king to the south, maybe all of Israel. And the point is, God, if God blesses the king, if God blesses Israel and leads them by his right hand in the way of righteousness and, 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 he, and his hand is upon them, they'll turn back and they'll be faithful. It's God's hand on them, turn back and be faithful. And they would be restored rather than perish. They, they will have restoration rather than be destroyed. And they, they would again have the face of God smiling upon them. That's the point. Again, if you know anything about the gospel, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that the Son of Man was the favorite 
term Jesus used for himself. He identified himself as the Son of Man more than any other title in the New Testament. This prayer, this plea, this this petition is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ who comes to Israel as the Son of Man at the right hand to restore and to accomplish salvation. We're going to look more at the restoration tonight, 4 o'clock, 7 o'clock, our Christmas Eve service. We're looking at Psalm 98. We're going to have a a candle lighting at the end. I hope you can come back, 4 o'clock or 7 o'clock. But for now, let's look at Jesus, the restorer, who saves his people as the true and better, unique Son of Man. When Jesus used the title Son of Man in in the New Testament, he means two things. Number one, he means that he is fully human. That Jesus himself, God himself, has taken on humanity. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is now qualified as God, as man, who lived perfectly, obeyed the law, and fulfilled the law perfectly. He now is able, as the Son of Man, to restore and to judge all things. He lived perfectly. He has the perfect requirements. He's the shared with us in our humanity, of course, yet without sin. He's the only one who it says here can be mighty and be made strong, literally secured, victorious for God. Because he's righteous, he's without sin, he's without guilt, and he's without shame. He alone is the God-man. Secondly, Son of Man, you've heard me say this before, is the one that Jesus is talking about and fulfilling in Daniel 7. The prophet of old, showed in Daniel 7, prophesied in Daniel 7, because he sees the Son of Man coming from the clouds of heaven, coming from the judge, the throne of God. He's come to judge the world. From the ancients of day, the Son of Man has come. He, He will judge the world, and it says he will have given all dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations, languages should serve him or worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Advent is the coming of the rightful and mighty King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God himself has come. And by his love and by his grace, he restores his people. He saves his people. And once God acts, once God does for us, the promise in verse 18 will be secure. People will call upon him. People will not turn from him. People will be given new life by his spirit. They will call upon his name. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord. O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we might be saved. That's what Advent's about. The coming of Jesus to restore God's people. A people who, because of their sin, who have had the frown of God upon their life because of their rebellion, but now because of Advent, because of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, their smile could be upon us. The the, the benediction can be spoken over us. We have a Savior who lived a perfect life, willing to die on the cross to suffer the shame. Our shame bore our sins, paid the debt we owe to God, who rose from the dead three days later, victorious over sin, death, and hell, and the grave. A Savior that sits at the right hand of the Father, (laughs) interceding continually for his children. A coming King who will restore all of creation at his second advent. Advent is the confidence that God's smile can be upon you. 2 Corinthians 5. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you placed your hope 
Have you placed your hope in the good shepherd who gave his life for you? Have you given your life to the one true vine that when you're grafted in as a branch, you now have life in his name? Do you know the one whom is the son of man who will come in the clouds of glory to establish an eternal king? Do you know that God? Do you know that king? Have you repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus, trusting him alone for your salvation? Then you'll hear the benediction. I love you. My face is shining upon you. Do you believe in that king? In that restoration? Let us pray. Father, thank you that although we are sheep that go astray and bump our heads and fall off cliffs and all kinds of other things. But you're a faithful God, a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of kindness who did not leave us in our waywardness but sent your son, atoning sacrifice for the debt of our sin. And then you raised him from the dead and seated with you at the heavenlies. And we look forward to the restoration of the coming king. But today, Father, we pray that we would come to know and love Jesus Christ, that the smile Your smile could be upon us that we can hear the benediction because our sins have been forgiven. And now, Father, we are one and reconciled with you. Help us as we sing to worship you and to relinquish control of our lives. Stop being our own saviors and to trust in you and you alone, we pray.